Hello, and welcome to the Saga of Japan podcast with Charles Shanahan. Episode 10, Epidemic. I think too often when we study history, or when history is taught to us, many times the source of knowledge treats the historical topic as important for its own sake. I've encountered many teachers in my own profession who find the subject extremely interesting, or they're super enthusiastic about it, but they have trouble bringing it back to the importance of it to their modern-day students, who may not see the relevance or the significance of it. I firmly believe that history cannot justify itself as a study for its own sake. Yes, of course history is important, but if you sat down in a history classroom where the professor or teacher told you, you should learn X, and you said, why, before they replied, because it's important or because I said so, you would probably quickly lose interest. History, of course, has great value. After all, you are in the latest chapter of the great storybook of humanity. It would be foolish to try and turn the page without learning about the chapters that came before. History itself doesn't struggle with being relevant, important, or interesting. Instead, it is usually those who communicate history that struggle with those aspects. Of course, some lessons are easier than others to demonstrate the relevance of, and today's episode is just such a lesson. We've arrived at an interesting episode focusing in particular on the smallpox epidemic that erupted in and changed Japan in the 8th century. While this episode releases in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic of 2020, it was certainly not planned that way, as 95% of the script for the podcast episodes are written months in advance, as each one requires an absurd amount of research to check and double-check the information. On its own, I think the smallpox epidemic of 735 is an interesting point in the saga of Japan. But current events mean that there will be little trouble understanding the relevance, as there can so often be with so many historical topics. As always, thank you for joining us for this episode in the Saga of Japan. Last time we arrived at the beginning of the Nara period, named after the moving of the capital to Nara, a place surrounded by religious sites of great significance. Along with this new move was the establishment of the Ritsuryo system, followed by revisions and additions dealing with land ownership, taxation, and noble ranks. The purpose of this was to further centralize authority within ranking ministers of the state, such as the ministers of left, right, and center. During this time, the Fujiwara clan is ascendant. Although not entirely unopposed, they are slowly accumulating power, occupying a growing number of seats in the Ritsuryo system. In fact, in 729, four brothers, all from the Fujiwara clan, were made members of the Council of State, beginning a short-lived regime known as the Fujiwara Four, though that will come to an end for reasons that will be obvious shortly. In the midst of this system, the emperor not only ruled but served as the supreme priests and was seen as a literal god. And unlike the Chinese system from which this system is borrowed, new codes introduced a council of kami affairs. At the beginning of the Nara period, natural local reserves of copper are discovered within Japan. The ministers at court are ecstatic. Copper was a known metal and had been extremely important in the past, being integral to the production of bronze. However, it had always been imported from the mainland. A local source of this would be a great military boon, especially considering it meant less reliance on international supplies. The discovery of copper within Japan was so important that the government of the time declared it to be the beginning of the Japan Copper Era. Now, with copper being mined within the Yamato Kingdom, the Ritsuryo system established and the Fujiwara clan ascendant, 
Japan is on the path to becoming stronger than ever. Growing stronger, their first instinct was to look to the north, where the indigenous groups of Japan lived that the Yamato kingdom had nicknamed Toad Barbarians. That should give you an idea of what they thought of them. Over the years, they had combated the indigenous groups in increasing frequency. Secondly, however, the court also used the new systems to establish government outposts in aforementioned outlying provinces, including in the northern part of the island of Kyushu, the island closest to the Chinese-Korean mainland. Had you asked someone of the period where disaster will strike first, most would have said wars with the indigenous people. Isn't that what most would expect in many time periods? the source of disaster and death of your fellow countrymen, to be other people? Sure, you may know of disease, famine, and natural disasters, but the frequency is so low, or it's so unpredictable, that you don't really think that it can happen to you. Few expect a disaster to begin in the town of Daizafu, on the northern island of Kyushu, before spreading across Japan and bringing the nation to its knees. In 735, a fisherman who lived in Daizafu became stranded on the Korean peninsula. After some time, he was finally brought back home, but he did not arrive the same man. Either upon arrival or soon after, he had violent swellings on his skin. The poor man was suffering from smallpox. Smallpox is a deadly, infectious virus that prefers to attack skin cells while also causing respiratory issues, among other things. Therefore, victims often show rash-like symptoms and lesions across the body, leading to scarring and oftentimes death. If you're anything like me or my students, upon learning of something gruesome, your first instinct is to Google search images of it. Such a result would quickly show you the suffering and scarring caused by this horrific disease, that is, assuming you survive the disease. By August of 735, the virus had spread rapidly throughout the city. When several envoys from Nara passed through Daizafu on their way to a diplomatic mission in Korea, they contracted the virus one by one. So many on the mission perished that the group had to turn back to Nara. However, we must remember to put ourselves in the shoes of those at the time and know that things like modern germ theory were still over a thousand years away. As the group traveled back, they likely spread it to many of the towns and villages they passed through while those traveling through or from Daizafu also spread the disease to other parts of Japan. Once the diplomats arrived back in Nara, they unknowingly spread the disease to those in the imperial court as well. Among the many casualties at court from this disease are the Fujiwara Four, breaking the Fujiwara's grip on power, at least for the moment, and altering the political landscape. The epidemic will fundamentally alter Japanese society as well. By 737, just two years later, it's estimated that the outbreak killed over one-third of the entire population of Japan. It's nearly impossible for us to truly grasp such large numbers of death. We're often so busy, focused on the large number, that we completely miss what it can do to small communities. What happens when your warriors die? Your youth? In the modern day, your healthcare professionals? Your educators? What about your farmers? In this epidemic, as with many future ones, we know exactly what happens in the event of that last scenario. In Japan, famine became widespread as farmers either suffering from or afraid of the disease abandoned their crops, leading to food shortages throughout the country. This epidemic will fundamentally alter the nature of society in Japan, politically, socially, 
and religiously. It disrupted the imperial court and hamstrung the Ritsurio system. Soon, even private land ownership is offered and tax collection is suspended as communities try to recover from the disease. Politically, with the Fujiwara Four perishing, it means that Fujiwara power will slowly decline, although this is only temporary and they are by no means out of the picture. However, even this temporary slide from power sets the stage for a rebellion led by a Fujiwara leader, which we will be covering next episode. On the religious side of things, the Emperor Shomu will see a great need to strengthen Buddhism within the country, believing that it would prevent further disaster. To this end, he will order the Todaiji Temple to be constructed, which today is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The Emperor will also commission a giant bronze Buddha statue to be built and placed within. While both the temple and the Buddha have been damaged and rebuilt in the centuries since, you can still visit both today. Over time, Japan will continue to be ravaged by smallpox epidemics, with the outbreak of 735 just being one of many, as the virus becomes endemic to Japan, meaning that while the virus sustains itself among the population, it no longer grows exponentially. Among the common people, many began to believe that smallpox was a disease caused by an onryo. An onryo was oftentimes a spirit who had been wronged in life and sought vengeance on the perpetrator. While these spirits are mentioned in early histories, in some instances even being named as the cause of death, they oftentimes did not take a solid form. Later on in the Edo period, when kabuki performances required the portrayal of an onryo, the audience needed a clear indication of the character's nature and identity. Actors would don a specific costume meant to signal to the audience that they represented an onryo. This costume, used by kabuki actors of the Edo period, might sound familiar to horror movie fans today. The costume included long black hair, stark white face makeup, and a white burial kimono or gown. If your first thought was The Grudge or The Ring, both of which are American adaptations of Japanese horror films, you'd be right. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go ahead and give either of them a watch. Make sure you view them late at night, in your home, alone, with all the lights out. What's the worst that could happen? <clears throat> Moving on. Over time, many considered smallpox to be evidence of a demon, and when one was suspected, peculiar, sometimes cruel measures were taken. For example, if an older person or a child were to contract it and begin showing symptoms, it was not uncommon to leave them stranded in the woods on a mountain to protect the rest of the village or town. Some began to believe that smallpox was caused by a smallpox god, and that those who are vulnerable should erect shrines to placate the demon. Furthermore, it was also believed this demon was afraid of dogs as well as the color red. Stepping outside the borders of Japan for a moment, the idea that smallpox could be treated with the color red is an interesting thought. Not because it worked, of course. Even though a Nobel laureate of the 19th century claimed it had scientific basis, we know today it's absolute medical nonsense. I find it interesting because the idea that smallpox could be treated by the color red even appeared in Europe during the Middle Ages not just as a one-off crazy person medical treatment, but among several monarchs of Europe spanning several centuries. In my research, I've not been able to find in any history where these ideas originate from. Smallpox devils and gods appearing in several geographically separate cultures is not surprising to me, as we see this occur with many natural events and disasters. The specific idea of using the color red appearing in cultures on near opposite sides of the globe 
is surprising to me, and it would be fascinating to know where this idea originated from and why. If you, the listener, happen to know or find out where the idea of red treatment for smallpox originated or why, let me know. I'd be happy to credit you and feature your answer, with sources please, in a future episode. Finally, as we mentioned, smallpox became endemic to Japan around this outbreak, sustaining its presence but not growing exponentially. This is a point of major consequence for our study of Japanese history. Those who have studied the history of the Americas know about the consequences of European arrival and the diseases they brought with them, such as smallpox. The indigenous peoples in these regions were decimated by these new diseases, oftentimes irrevocably destroying their populations and peoples. However, when Europeans begin to arrive in Japan, such as the Spanish and Portuguese missionaries of the 16th century, these same diseases had already been in Japan for centuries. Thus, the arrival of Europeans did not carry the same breadth of destruction as they had on other continents, making Japan far more able to resist European imperialist tendencies than their later colonized counterparts. However, that is quite a bit ahead of where we are on the timeline. I'll leave you with one final story dealing with smallpox in Japan, albeit it is more or less a diary, dated over 200 years later than the 735 epidemic. The author was a woman in the Heian court who wrote a series of poems and prose over her life and times called the Gossamer Years. Today, we do not know her name, only referring to her as the mother of Mishitsuna. Throughout the story, she tells us about her relationship with the prince, whom she married and loved dearly. She becomes heartbroken as he continues to sleep around with other women, leaving her essentially alone to raise their son. The mother of Mishitsuna is trapped, as she could not become a Buddhist nun. To do so meant abandoning her son's social status and potential future advancement. Eventually, after devoting her life to her son, we learn that he is infected with smallpox. In her final diary entry, the mother of Mishitsuna writes, quote, It spread to this section of the city toward the end of the month, and my son came down with a severe case. The epidemic continued to grow worse. I was saddened, and at the same time, grateful that my own son began to recover. End quote. In reading this, the good news is that his recovery meant he likely became immune during future outbreaks, even if he retained any lingering effects. The sad news is, as this is her last diary entry, it can be assumed that not long after, she too contracted the illness and perished, believing her writings and legacy would be short-lived, describing it as the diary of a mayfly in the shimmering heat of a summer's day. As always, thank you so much for joining us on this journey through the history of Japan. You can contact me at the website listed in the show notes or at twitter.com slash saga of Japan. I deeply appreciate you taking the time out of your day to give a listen to the Saga of Japan, and I hope to see you next time. <laughs>